Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the self-taught artist, William Scott. Scott works out of a gallery and studio in Oakland, California, called Creative Growth, that advances the inclusion of artists with developmental disabilities. Scott was born schizophrenic and is also on the autistic spectrum. He frequently describes himself as an architect reinventing the social topography of a gentrified San Francisco, as a utopian city he calls Praise Frisco, in works that combine architectural design with civic responsibility to describe his desire for a more equitable society. Scott's paintings also confront loss and contemplate ideas of renewal and rebirth. In his long-standing Inner Limits series, he paints spaceships that are designed to resurrect the dead, while another series, which he calls Another Life, recreates his personal history, imagining alternative lives he could have led. I saw William's work in December at Studio Voltaire, a London-based not-for-profit arts organization, which put on the first significant survey of Scott's 30-year practice. The exhibition itself has ended, but together with Studio Voltaire, the Architecture Foundation has produced a series of talks which take Scott's work as a starting point to discuss wider concerns in architecture, including the roles of biography and cultural memory in city-making, and the relationships between power, policy, and place-making. If you're interested, the links to those talks have been included in the show notes of this episode. I was lucky enough to speak with Scott himself via Zoom last month from his studio at Creative Growth, where we talked through some of his paintings in more detail, all of which will be posted on Scaffold's Instagram account, so head on over there when you can to follow along to our conversation. After speaking with Scott, I had a follow-up discussion with Creative Growth's gallery director, Sarah Gallander-Meyer, to talk more about William's work, as well as the ethics surrounding the representation of neurodiversity in contemporary art the evolution of what was formerly known as the outsider art movement, and the cultural shifts which have begun to bring neurodiverse and self-taught artists into the mainstream. Following our conversation, Sarah shared an insight with me that I wanted to mention here, which was that an important signifier of an artist, neurodiverse or otherwise, is that they respond to their environment. And this is especially true for William Scott whose work often reckons with the rapid gentrification of San Francisco by revisiting and radically reimagining the city he grew up in. So here's my interview with William Scott, followed by my conversation with Sarah Gallander-Meyer. I hope you enjoy them. Hi. Hi, William's here. Come on, William. I'm here. Hi, William. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing fine. I'm just going to be right outside um, the hallway. William, if you need me or if not, you need me for anything, just give a holler. Okay. Great. Thanks, Kathleen. Okay. Come on. Okay. 
Good to see you, Len. I love your hat. <laughs> so you're wearing a black cowboy hat. You just put it on. And a black leather jacket, I see. It looks amazing. Um, so you work mainly with painting, right? That's right. But I've read that you you often describe yourself as an architect. That's and I right. wonder, could you tell me more about why that is? Because that's a good building and that is a good safe mm -hmm. to be safe in San Francisco and have a gospel people in Prairie Frisco in the city so they can have a lot of gospel people so they can they can have a peacemaker in Prairie Frisco who would take San Francisco's place. Mm -hmm. So this is all this is all ringing so many bells because I've looked at a lot of your paintings. So the words that you're using now are really familiar to me. And what it what it sounds like to me is that um, you're talking about a new kind of world that you're imagining. Because uh, uh, so it'll make it a, a peaceful better. Mm -hmm. And so I mean, it sounds like the the way that you're using the, the idea of being an architect has to do with um, making this new world, making a better place, and in particular, a better city. So Praise Frisco is a whole, it's a project that encompasses a whole group of paintings, right? That's and right. you talked about in the past about canceling San Francisco <laughs> and replacing it with Praise Frisco. It was, it was a bad news in San Francisco. It was the killings in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. That's why I did some ideas of, of uh, renamed Price Frisco because uh, it was bad news in San Francisco was killings in San Francisco. Mm. So I just heard some humming in the background. Is everything okay over there? That's, uh, that's a machine. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot, there's a lot of work going on there. That's right. Um, let's talk more about Praise Frisco. So you're describing the problems that you've seen with the city of San Francisco. And you've made all these paintings to reimagine a different version of that city called Praise Frisco. And I wonder now if I could, I'm going to share my screen. I want to talk about some paintings with you in more detail. So this, this brings me to my one of my favorite paintings by you, which Sorry. I want to just describe it uh, with words and then we can talk about it. So it's a dense and glimmering cityscape at dusk and Sorry. there are fireworks and searchlights shining up into a dark blue sky. Sorry. And at the top of the painting are the words, praise Frisco at night. Yeah, that's right. Can you tell me more about this painting? Because this painting has a, a gospel people who shining up on the on the air at nighttime up on the sky, the shiny uh, gospel people with shining lights. Hmm. It's funny, like these words that you're using, they make me feel a certain way. Like when you say gospel people or gospel music, um, I feel I can't tell you how happy I feel. <laughs> it was, uh, Hollywood gospel. Mm -hmm. like, up on the sky 
Yeah, and the lights that we see in the background, they remind me a lot of Hollywood, actually. Like when a new movie's premiering and you see the searchlights beaming up into the sky. That's right. So there's this real feeling of celebration. That's right. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Let's move to the next painting. Yeah, that's right. So the next one, it's another version of the Praise Frisco painting. This one has more detail in it, though. So in addition to the cityscape, uh, right. We have some people in the foreground dancing through three women, uh, one in a blue suit, uh, one in a black suit, one in That's a red right. suit. They all have uh, wide-brimmed hats with feathers in them. That's and right. I want to read some of the text that's surrounding these three women who are dancing in the foreground with the yeah. cityscape behind them. So it says, United Peace Union States. New world celebrates new gods of Selma's, Cleopatra's, Serafina's, peace planets. And then there's a text that says, Good People's Lives, San Francisco Redevelopment Agency, Balcony Resorts, Hollywood Gospel Fest, Universal created the peace in the world, Bahamas Positive City, Praise Frisco. That's right. So these people, who are these people dancing? These are C.C. Uh, uh, Winans, Dottie Peoples, and Dorinda Kirk Cole. And are they part of your church? And, uh, they're, they're part of the church. Okay. Gospel stars. Because I've read that sometimes you, you paint people from your church into your paintings. Uh, not from my church. That's from the other church. From another church. Okay. Gospel stars. And then in between the people and the city behind them, there is a freeway. Uh, we can see the lights from the, the taillights and headlights of the cars. And in the very far distance, we see what I think might be the San Francisco Bay. Yeah, San Francisco Bay. And a beautiful bridge crossing the bay. Great, that's right. And then in the background, there's a, a cityscape with lots of towers and, again, these glimmering lights. But then on top of every tower, there's text, and the text is... Uh, they're like signs that explain what the buildings are. So we see Marriott's Hotel, Paramount Hotel, Four Seasons. There's a lot of Hilton hotels, Gospel Hotel. It seems like they're all hotels. That's right. Tell me more about hotels and why they're so important. Because the gospel can live in peacefully. Yeah, that's like a, a condominiums hotel, like mm. a condominiums mm. Who lives in a healthy style? Mm. Lives in healthy lifestyles. So this city feels like a place where um, where you are invited to relax. Yeah, invited to relax. Yeah. And I noticed this this word balcony. This idea of balcony resorts comes up. You like balconies a lot. Yeah. It seems like they, they come up a lot in the paintings you make. Let's move on to the next one Okay. to talk more about them. So this next painting, we see two large tower blocks called the Martin Luther King Towers. Geneva Avenue is by Calpels on Geneva Avenue. Okay. Yeah, and there's street names. There's also, we see there's a Black Lives Matter painted on the street. And then there's also Barack Obama Boulevard. Mm -hmm. So we have these two big tower blocks in the background. And then in the foreground, we have smaller kind of housing projects. And right. 
these two towers they look to me a lot like hotels as well like they remind me of hotels from the 1980s That's um right. and every window is like a giant kind of balcony um tell me more about these two towers and um what they're for that's for the uh the good people who lives in that's for the good people to live in mm. and so the people who live in peacefully have a peaceful town mm. for asians and indians and african-americans mm. and asians let's move on to the next painting now okay so we've just moved from praise frisco into mm. a different kind of painting so yes. the painting we're looking at now is part of the skyline friendly organization series right or SFO for short. And these paintings feature like spaceships, which you call citizenships, uh, right. which bring people back from the dead. It's like allowing people to be reborn who've passed away. So this painting in particular, it's like a 1960s style spaceship of some kind. It's yellow and long. And along the side of it are the words, uh, wholesome encounters, skyline friendly organizations. And then across the front, it says citizenship SFOs. And then there are five people behind the ship. You can see them. They're almost like portraits you've painted of them behind the ship. That's right. Uh, five black people. And then in the front is the text inner limits. That's right. So where are these people going uh, who are on this citizenship? They're going to, uh, to, the, to the inner skyline going to uh, opportunity space, opportunity space. Mm. And who are these people actually? They are uh, wholesome people of SFOs riding on the spaceship. Wholesome people, wholesome humans. Like, like a different types of people, wholesome people who takes evil's place. Mm. No evils, no aliens, mm -hmm. just wholesome people. So this, I mean, to me, it has this real sense of like, it's like science fiction. Yeah, like science fiction. And there's a sense that there is this epic journey. Right. Also that there is an opportunity for people to become good or become reborn. To come good to come reborn from the dead. Mm. Inner limits people bring people back to life from the dead. And this theme of rebirth, it's present in a lot of the other paintings you've done as well. Let's move on to the next one. That's right. So we're going to look at a different series now called Another Life. That's right. And there are two there are two paintings on the screen right now. They're both of you as a child, as a boy. The one on the left, um, it's you in a suit and tie. You have an Afro and there's a blue background and then there's text around you. That's right. On the top of the Afro, it says another life. That's right. And then on your right shoulder, it says 
Rose Olive Baptist Church. And then on your left shoulder, there's a, a crucifix and it says Church Choir 1976. And then on the right, there's another painting of you in an LA Lakers jersey holding a basketball. That's right. And um, then uh, there's some text along your arm that says Lord of Jesus Christ. And then on top of that is the date 1976, reborn. Uh, and then there's text saying reborn of Billy the Kid, another life, one day in the new life. So what's so important about 1976? So I will be a, so I can be a basketball player in 1976. Go to the basketball camp mm. when I will be wearing an afro. Mm -hmm. I'll be going to to a basketball camp in 1976 in another life mm -hmm. with the professional health, mm. with no disabilities, with no disabilities, just That's professional health. It's like you're you're imagining uh, a different version of your childhood. That's right. Because did you ever did you ever play basketball? Uh, no. And did not did you, not wore no afro in 1976. I had short hair. You had short hair. I mean, tell me why it's so important to paint yourself this way. So 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 I will be coming back to life in another life. Mm. So it's almost like you're trying to, in a way, you're imagining another life for yourself by painting uh, a different version of your own adolescence. That's right. That's a real life. Mm. That's a real, another life. That's real. And it's so interesting to hear you say that it's real, like painting for you is a way of making things real. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't matter if it's in the past or in the future. If you in paint, if that's you paint it, it somehow changes the story, right? Yeah, that's in the future of 1976 future. Mm. And to me, there's a real overlap in the way that architects think about the future. That's right. And the way that architects draw to change the world. Yeah. I mean, it sounds corny, but it's true that everything's a fiction. Everything's made up until... Yeah. It's not <laughs> that all the drawings that architects do are completely fictitious until they're built. That's right. So there's this really, to me, this really clear relationship between your paintings and the kind of futures they imagine and the stories they tell and the imaginative work that architects do to create new futures. That's right. Let's go down to the next painting. Next painting. This one, I think, this is one of the paintings that moved me the most when I saw it in the gallery. Um, right. It's quite intimate. It's a picture of you. Um, there's, there's two portraits of you. That's right. Both with your shirt off. One is of you with uh, burn marks on your chest. And next to that is a version of you without the burns. Uh... So, so the another life will come. I won't have no scars in another life. Mm. Yeah, that's before, and that's after of the new life. Mm -hmm. To reborn 
as a new body of uh, with no scars. Because you you suffered a a bad burn as a child, is that right? That's right. And so what you're doing here, it looks like you're you're painting a version of yourself where that never happened or where you healed completely. Yeah. So because uh, it would never happen again. Hmm. And so like with this painting, there's an insistence that through painting this other version of you, where your skin is perfect again and unharmed, it somehow does, it changes the story you tell yourself about that accident. I mean, how do you, how do you feel when you look at this painting? Feel better. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go on to the next painting now. Okay. I really like this one. Like so, this? yeah. So it's a map of Africa. And in the foreground, you painted a portrait of yourself, again, with an Afro. You're wearing a purple shirt with a large collar. And, and we see in the bottom right hand corner in big, in big font, uh, the year 1976. That's right. And in the top left, you've written uh, the title, which is Rebuilding the Future of 20th Century as Peace, No War. And what's interesting about the map is that at a glance, it looks like a normal map of Africa. But when you look closer, all of the countries and all the districts that you've painted in are a kind of combination of places from all over the world and places from the U.S. in particular. That's right. So we see in South Africa, for example, there is a region of that area that's renamed South San Francisco. And in, I mean, in, in other areas, we see that West Atlanta has found its way in. Tell me more about how you made this map. I mean, because I made this map for the, uh, for the good world, for the peaceful world. That's why I made it for the good, peaceful neighborhoods, for the peacemaking, for the peacemaker. That's for the peacemaker. And how did you decide to, to bring places from all over the world into the continent of Africa when you redrew the map? So, so we can have a, a a nice peaceful town, a peacefully town mm. for the good for the good town for for bringing twentieth century back to the future. Twentieth mm. century back to the future. So make it peaceful. Twentieth century peaceful. Mm-hmm. To make it peaceful, to take off the war off the off the planet. Mm. So we take the war off the off the world. Mm-hmm. To have no more war, mm. no more bad world, no more. I mean, what it makes me think of too is that um, places are as much ideas as they are real geographical places yeah. and that africa is as much an idea 
as it is a real place. And that in this painting, Africa as an idea somehow encompasses the whole world or the whole world can fit into Africa. Yeah, it, it can fit in Africa. Mm -hmm. It can fit in. Let's move on to the next painting now. Okay. So this is the last, these aren't paintings actually, they're murals um, right. of paintings you've done that have been posted up around Studio Voltaire here in London. That's right. Um, so there's a mural of one of your paintings um, of yourself um, on the gable end of a building. It's you with a giant Afro and the words blessed on top of it. That's right. And then there are three billboards uh, in the next picture that have um, one of your cityscapes, another one of you in the LA Lakers jersey. Um, right. And then there's a, a third one of four women um, with the words en vogue above them. That's right. How does it feel to see your work in public spaces like this so big for everyone to see? I feel really good. It makes me feel really good, really happy. And I mean, what do you want people to think? What are you hoping people are thinking or feeling when they see this work? They can feel real happy and good, feel very good feeling happy, lucky, happy. Lucky, happy. That's right. William, thanks so much for taking the time to talk again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Well, this interview is not like it's not going into a video, is it? No. <laughs> okay, good. Don't worry. Sorry. <laughs> it's strictly audio. Otherwise, I would I would have put my laundry away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, thanks for making time to talk. What I was hoping to do is get some context. Uh, for the conversation I had with William last week. So I thought it would be good to try and talk to someone at Creative Growth about, first of all, the organization and its mandate. I heard an interview with um, Matthew Higgs, who's a gallerist at White Columns, and Tom DeMaria, who is a director at Creative Growth. And in that conversation, Creative Growth was described on similar terms to institutions like Black Mountain College. You know, it was established in the 1970s and was a very progressive, almost countercultural place. So tell me more about its beginnings. Sure, yeah. It began uh, in 1974 uh, in the Bay Area, kind of at the same time that the disability rights movement uh, was gaining momentum here in the Bay Area as well. So. Um, it was at the time a very radical idea 
um, for the founders, who was a couple. Um, he was a psychologist and she was an artist, this couple, Florence and Elias Katz. So it at the time, you know, it made sense to them, but it was very radical um, in terms of uh, its thinking about um, people with disabilities having access and being celebrated for their artistic potential. Um, so they, uh, it really started in the garage of their house in Berkeley and then very quickly grew to be a much larger program. And as I understand it, it's the oldest and largest organization of its kind? It is, yeah. And it primarily um, facilitates um, studio space for artists with developmental disabilities. Is That's that right. right. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and gallery space also, that was always a part of uh, the Katz's vision was not just to be a studio space for experimentation and creativity, but also to have a gallery space for the sale of their work and sort of integration and interaction uh, with other artists and the public. Hmm. And it feels like there are at least two modes through which institutions like creative growth could be seen as operating. One is as a kind of um, sanctuary almost where art, health, and well-being come together. I can imagine the kind of work that William is doing is very therapeutic for him in terms of uh, reflecting on his thoughts and ideas, also just being given time and space to produce um, the work he wants to make. But then on the other hand, as you're saying, it's also about providing a kind of bridge between artists with developmental disabilities and a wider public audience, uh, both in terms of um, creating opportunities for a public to engage with the work, but also creating or facilitating, I guess, an entry into the art world as well. So can you tell me more about those two those two kind of facets of creative growth? Yeah, um, it is sort of uh, two different tracks in a way. I mean, uh, the philosophy at creative growth really is a very hands-off approach in the studio. Um, so, uh, you know, and we all stand behind, you know, that any pressures from the art market or if an artist is receiving a certain amount of attention at any given time, it, it in no way pressures the artist or the studio to produce um, artwork. Like it's not an artwork factory, for instance, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it really is that uh, the artist and their creativity is the core of everything and everything sort of um, uh, comes from there. So my job as the gallery director is really to um, work with the artist and, and their process and their work without sort of allowing any pressures from the market to influence their creativity. And to me, that's so, it's so fascinating to try and understand like what it means to, to in a way protect artists like William from market influence, for example. But also, I guess there's a question there about um, the role of influence in this kind of art. Um, Actually, I feel like before we go further, we need to step back and talk about what what I mean when I say this kind of art or what we might mean when we say this kind of art, because there's so many different <clears throat> ways of defining 
uh, art produced by people, uh, for example, with developmental disabilities or people who are otherwise outside of um, the mainstream. So I think historically, art like Williams would have been referred to as outsider art. But um, I understand that there's other ways of kind of framing it or categorizing it now. So before we go any further, could you could you kind of walk me through the different terms or ways of understanding and framing um, this kind of artwork? Sure. Um, well, yes, you're correct. There, there was sort of a movement, the art brute movement, you know, that was sort of born in the 1940s, um, uh, sort of morphed into outsider art as a term that was being used and accepted. And people are sort of dropping that now. Um, and, um, you know, uh, creative growth's position, honestly, with our artists, and particularly for artists like William, uh, he is a contemporary artist, first and foremost, um, and uh, self-taught, meaning he didn't, uh, you know, do a studio art program. He hasn't completed sort of the education that other um, artists may have completed, but he's self-taught and he is a contemporary artist. Mm-hmm. So there's a an insistence that that category should be broad enough to include everyone and that it's really the descriptor of self-taught that differentiates um, work by William and, and, um, and I guess all the artists who are working out of creative growth. Um, yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, otherwise we would be talking about his particular diagnoses, which in some ways might inform his work, but um, it just doesn't seem um, appropriate in this day and age. You know, there was a time when it was, but um, that's not necessary now. And, you know, there are other artists who have had training that also have diagnoses that are not discussed mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about his work so and their work. So um, mm-hmm. we just choose not to. Mm. It's not relevant. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about um, other kinds of artwork that I've encountered where I've wondered about, um, I guess, the state of mind of the artist producing the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've all come across artwork that's provocative or that is um, difficult to understand or that confounds us in different ways. And so to me, it makes perfect sense that um, in some ways, it's unnecessary to to consider as a viewer um, any kind of formal categorized diagnosis when it comes to, for example, mental health. But at the same time, for me personally, in coming to the interview with William, it was helpful to know, um, for example, that uh, he has been diagnosed with schizophrenia and that he's on the autistic spectrum because in a way it prepared me to approach the conversation in a particular way. Uh Um, So I felt like, I guess, the label for me was a kind of guide or a kind of vague indicator about how I might come to the conversation, Uh, not with preconceptions necessarily, but just prepared (laughs) in certain ways. Sure. Um, Yeah. Do you feel like that um, that changed the way that you viewed his work 
in any way, though? I mean, I can understand that that was helpful in terms of how to conduct an interview and things like that. But I'm wondering if that changed the way you experienced his artwork, because, Hmm. um, you know, there is another artist at Creative Growth who's quite well known um, where the diagnosis of autism like directly informs his process, Hmm. which I do, which I do, which we do talk about, you know, quite openly, um, because you can really see a direct uh, influence on the artwork itself. With William, I actually don't find it as uh, clear, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly uh, in, um, you know, just personal relationship with him or or in talking with him, it, it is helpful. You know, mm-hmm. it can be, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think what I'm understanding now is that maybe this conversation is kind of like a debrief for me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> And probably a debrief for listeners as well, um, so that we have these kind of two two formats through which to understand um, William's paintings. Sure. Um, but maybe continuing on this kind of debrief uh, mode, what I found interesting, because I interviewed him twice, the first time I feel like I hadn't really prepared properly. And so it was kind of like an introduction yeah. uh, to get a sense of, um, uh, his style of conversation and how he thinks, and then tailoring um, a series of questions to kind of meet to meet him there. Um, and in a way, it was really helpful to come back and talk to him again because it gave me more time with the paintings themselves. And it really allowed me to enter his world more fully through the artwork. Yeah. Um, so that when we met again, um, and he started kind of using the same language that's visible in the paintings and referring to the same kinds of um, spaces or scenarios, whether it's Praise Frisco or the Skyline Friendly Organization or the Another Life series. I had already established um, a foundation and an understanding of what those things meant um, that I maybe hadn't Uh, built up the first time we spoke. And to me, what that allowed us to do was have a more collaborative discussion. There is something I think that was revealed to me in terms of different ways of uh, interacting um, with um, an artist about their work. And that was really exciting. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, Kate, I'm so curious to hear more about what that difference is. Mm. Um, well, I mean, in a way, it's maybe a kind of heightening of an attitude that I, I've carried with me around the understanding that you can't really expect an artist to explain themselves outside of their medium. Mm-hmm. And so if you're talking with a painter, the painting itself is the explanation. And I feel like we privilege language inordinately in in the way we interact with artwork. And meeting someone like William, uh, for whom language uh, um, is not a dominant form of communication, it kind of exacerbates the need to come at that discussion differently, accepting the fact that this is an oral medium, and at the end of the day, we do need to somehow talk. And so 
for me, description became more important. And it does put more work, I think, on the, the other, um, on the other side, on whether it's the viewer or the critic, to do more of that kind of work uh, in order to start to penetrate um, its meaning. Yeah. And that was exciting to me as well because I felt like the process of making the painting in a way or making it make sense was more collaborative. And I wasn't leaning on the artist to do all that work themselves. That's right. Um, and I feel like I kind of needed William to teach me that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love that you're bringing this up. This is really, um, you know, at, at the heart or the root of, um, you know, our sort of mission and uh, some of the barriers that exist in the contemporary art world in terms of, um, you know, people understanding or uh, understanding how to both relate to our artists and think about their artwork, you know, um, you know, because by and large, I think aesthetically, um, you know, particularly William's work is, is accepted and appreciated and, and, and quite beloved, but um, there's a hesitancy to like really engage or perhaps he can't reach a certain level of recognition because people don't understand how to engage with him or appropriately uh, talk about his work. Um, mm. So I love that you had that experience with him um, and that it was positive. <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly what, you know, I, I think the interview that you're referring to with Matthew Higgs and Tom DiMaria, um, that's exactly what Matthew said is that, you know, in order for artwork by people who uh, are neurodiverse, um, in order for that to become uh, more successful, uh, people need to sort of rethink about the way that they interact uh, with artists and artwork. And that's exactly what you discovered. Yeah. Mm. I also want to talk about or ask you about the subject of intention, which seems to come up a lot when, um, when discussions are had around um, self-taught art. So one thing I was curious about when I first encountered the work in the gallery was to what degree um, William believed in what he was painting um, in terms of like the reality he was representing, where, <clears throat> for example, um, whether it's um, the possibility of actualizing a new urban environment through his paintings mm -hmm. or the kind of reality of these kind of alien life forms or... Um, spaceships bringing back people from the dead or the reality of rehabilitating his own body through the act of painting. Um, and I guess, first of all, there's a question of whether or not intention is important um, or if it is, um, does that necessarily need to change the way uh, an audience encounters the work? I can't honestly say with any confidence whether I know that William believes that he's changing reality by painting things a certain way or different than they are. Um, I don't actually think that that's the case. I think that he has, um, you know, there is a utopian vision that he has um, that he 
knows is not reality that he enjoys thinking about and painting, you know, um, that translates in his artwork. And I, and I, I don't believe that he thinks that things are going to change by him creating a painting. Um, I had a conversation with him once um, because I know that, that that has been suggested. I had a conversation with him once where I was looking at a, I happened to be uh, looking at a painting of his that um, has, uh, you know, the face of Jesus and the face of Obama. And um, he was walking by, he loves it when people, you know, are looking at his work. And, and I just asked him like, what, you know, what's going on here? Like, like what's, what's up with Jesus and Obama, you know? And he said, he said, well, they have the power to bring, to, to order the Skyline Friendly organization to come, you know, like he, in his experience, like Jesus is powerful, Obama is powerful, and um, they could order the Skyline Friendly organization to come to earth. And I said, oh, I was like, wow, that sounds pretty amazing. And he said, wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I, I think that he, fully understands that like Jesus and Obama aren't going to order the Skyline Friendly Organization to bring people mm-hmm. uh, to Earth uh, to create peace and wholesome encounters. But um, I think he's excited by the idea. I think he, he's excited by the idea of a Skyline Friendly Organization and he's very dedicated to it. He has been for decades mm-hmm. and he loves seeing what that might play out like. But do I think that he thinks that there is one or will create one. I don't, I don't actually think so. Mm. Does that answer your question? I think so. I mean, and even if he did, I think initially I was curious about what it would mean um, in terms of the way the work is valued or consumed by a public to see uh, the evidence of delusion, you know, on display. Yeah, and what right. it means to kind of, um, I guess, take pleasure in in that viewing experience, um, but just thinking more about what delusion actually means. I mean, I am an architect. <laughs> yeah, and all we do is to kind of daydream and daydream to the extent that uh, we really need to believe in what we're trying before it's a reality. And um, I mean, similarly with artists, um, the realities that um, um, are kind of embedded in any given piece of artwork uh, are, if it's any good, most likely intensely personal to the degree that it, it, re- it remains nearly, if not entirely incomprehensible to someone outside of the work. And it's that sense of enchantment uh, around incomprehensibility of the kind of state of mind of other people that to me is a hallmark of the state of delusion as well. And so I think just spending more time with the work and thinking more about um, this distinction between whether or not um, William believes in what he's painting, to me it seemed less important now. But I mean, what... Um, regardless of whether he does, like, can you can walk me through 
a kind of broader discussion around this topic? Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, it's true that um, audiences are are drawn uh, to artists who sort of uh, who absolutely believe, you know, and this is particularly true in the outsider canon. Um, you know, the whole this the spaceship idea is is not new, you know, uh, to William, right? That exists, and there were artists that really believe that spaceships were coming and they painted them and that makes their artwork more attractive. Um, I think that I think that uh, maybe delusion is not not the correct term in a way. Um, I think that's sensational a little bit. Um, so, um, I believe that that exists in every artist sort of leap of faith or, or mm -hmm. an architect or anybody involved in any sort of creation, I suppose, um, has that element of, you know, risk or venture into the unknown, mm. um, with, with a lot of intention and belief behind it. Um, but I think in terms of my job uh, as sort of representing William, I, I, I don't want to capitalize on sensational language around a potential uh, intention. You know what I mean? Or I just, you know, I think we can. I think that it is successful in the world to do things like that. I don't think it's ethical in a way. Um, um, and I certainly wouldn't want to represent him as a delusional artist, that's for sure, you mm. know. Mm. I, yeah. And so this is where I guess it presents a challenge in terms of how one ought to see the work or how one ought to engage with and um, take meaning away from the work. Yeah. Uh, in a way that uh, adheres to ethical norms or something, or in a way that remains kind of ethically sound. <laughs> um, and I guess it brings us back to the way you first introduced William as being simply a self-taught artist. I guess I'm kind of curious, like what what constitutes a successful critique of self-taught art yeah good question <laughs> because in a way you're behoven as a as a gallery director to maintain uh the um a sense of neutrality around the way the work is represented and a sense of stability and obviously um a sound sense of ethics in terms of how the work is ushered from the studio into yeah. the wider world. Um, so I understand that hesitation around language like um, like the word delusion, for example, or the idea of framing William as a delusional artist. Um, but then there's this other position um, to consider, which is that of the critic, and I guess that of the audience, uh, as well, I guess, as that of the, the art art market itself. Um, and so to you, what constitutes a, a successful form of criticism for this kind of work? Right. Um, 
I don't know that I have the answer. And uh, I, I think that there, that um, critics are being confronted with that more and more sort of as more self-taught or neurodiverse artists are entering the contemporary art field in a, um, you know, in a pretty profound way, you know. Um, so what I see is um, there tends to be more, um, the writing is sort of more descriptive of the artist's work, um, which feels a little um, superficial in a way, but I think people just don't know what to do with it, which I, which I think is what you're driving at. Um, and so it is um, our responsibility in a, in a way to drive that conversation and frame uh, the reception of our artists' work. Um, and I think that we are all trying to figure that out together at a time when um, it doesn't feel respectful to um, simply explain it uh, in terms of uh, a diagnosis or an infatuation or um, an obsession or an urgent need, you know, th those have been explained and that works uh, or it used to work. And I don't, and, but I do feel like things are changing. Everybody wants to understand um, and, and respectfully and, and dig into something. I think that we are on the cusp of a deeper understanding and a new way of discussing and looking at artwork by self-taught neurodiverse artists. Mm. So I, I wish I did have like <laughs> the right answers. I, I think that we're getting there, you know, um, um, but I can't honestly say that I have mm. the answers. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, in a way we could end it there. I just wanna, I, yeah. I, I, I um, I just want to try a few other things and to see yeah. what happens. Um, just thinking more about the origins of outs kind of the the definition of outsider art or art brute, where artists were being defined by their ability to create from their own depths and not from current trends or academic rules. So this category originally of outsider art is art that is untouched by art culture. And it seems like the um, parameters of art criticism have to do with the degree to which the art in question is engaged and in what way it's engaged with art culture. And so when, when the art is removed from this kind of cultural ecosystem, and instead refers entirely to the inner life and inner world of the artist. To me, that's when it becomes deeply intriguing and incredibly challenging to try and ascribe any particular um, framework of interpretation to. That's right. But it is a question of value as well as, as kind of comprehension or interpretation. And so I know that 
you're saying that we're kind of on the cusp of something, but um, there isn't really a kind of model form of um, criticism when it comes to um, self-taught art. At the same time, though, I wonder if there are resources that you could point me to and point listeners to when it comes to encountering work uh, by self-taught artists. Sure. Um, well, that's tough. I, you know, <laughs> that I am immediately thinking of, you know, well, Roberta Smith at the New York Times, for example, right? She would be somebody that we would all look to for um, the model. Um, and I think that she's trying to figure it out as well. You know, she recently, there's one of our artists who had a show at White Columns, who's everything about her process and her artwork um, is so different and new, you know, and it was an incredibly successful show that happened at White Columns. Roberta Smith saw the show um, and she, she named it one of 2021's like best gallery shows. Um, and, but she, but, you know, she didn't, she didn't write it up, you know, I, and her, um, her reasoning was just, again, sort of that very descriptive language um, uh, because there has to be a new way of talking about it that even, you know, I, I haven't had a conversation with Roberta Smith, so my apologies, <laughs> Roberta, okay. if it's okay. incorrect, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that she's trying to figure it out as well. And I like that she wants to, like, I, I think that she's there. Uh, which is great. At least she's recognizing something in the artwork, which is also what people are recognizing in William's work at Studio Voltaire. You know, um, uh, for creative growth, this is not new. When artists and curators come to creative growth and they see the artwork that's happening, you know, everybody is, is blown away by the level of ingenuity um, and creativity that's happening. Like, outside of uh, any influence of the art world. And um, I think that's what audiences are responding to. How to sort of write about it and critique about it is another level of um, understanding that you are right. We have not, we haven't gotten to yet, but I, but I think we're on our way, you know? And as, as more artists get more major shows, um, you know, the world will be forced to reckon with that. Sarah, thank you so much. Sure. <laughs> I hope that was helpful. <laughs> that was, yeah. No, I, I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Special thanks this week to William Scott and to Kathleen Henderson for helping facilitate the conversation. Thanks to Sarah Gallander-Meyer for speaking with me, and to Nicola Wright at Studio Voltaire for taking the time to show me around the exhibition. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. All right, I'll see you next week.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.